Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, uh, which is able uh, to reach past every veneer of righteousness, uh, self-sufficiency, <clears throat> and every imagined holiness that we have, and, and cut to the quick and get right to uh, what it is about us that is insufficient, must change, and is not pleasing to you. We thank you for your word that the gospel then addresses that need. Um, we thank you for the truth that Jesus' blood was shed to cleanse us of unrighteousness and uh, that he rose from the grave and is now ascended in heaven, seated at your right hand, making intercession for us. That what your word tells us about us is not the end of the story, but your word also tells us about you and the great love with which you have chosen to love us. We pray that now as we turn our focus entirely to this, this text in the epistle of James, you would help us to see the truth about ourselves and the truth about you and to respond uh, honestly and in, in accordance with what you've commanded. We pray that you be with us now, Holy Spirit. Uh, keep us awake and attentive. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Last time we were in James, we looked at verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. And what we saw there was that there are these two sort of paths that James takes to help us verify the authenticity of our faith. First, he brings up the mouth. And second, he brings up how we treat other people, or, or he brings up the necessity of us loving other people. I suggested at that time that the reason James brings these two issues up is not that they form a comprehensive list of everything that it means to be godly, but that he is demonstrating kind of by contrast <clears throat> what the problem is or could be in the local church. A lack of bridal tongues, a lack of care for the truly needy. Um, I illustrated this by, by kind of, by demonstrating how, because church, biblical church, should have a high moral standard, what you often see happening is churches form little morality clubs that are centered around the idea that there, there are certain ways that it's acceptable to conduct yourself and there are certain ways that it's just not acceptable to conduct yourself. And then what happens is those churches might attract people who are only interested in that high moral standard and not interested in having a heart changed and loved by Jesus Christ. The outcome is an unhealthy church. If you have a church filled with people that don't really believe the gospel, 
but are committed to upholding a high moral standard, what you will have is a church that doesn't engage in the more obvious and grosser sins, but you'll have mouths that are uncontrolled because the mouth has to betray that the heart is unmanaged by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And you'll have churches with fairly large budgets because if you get people that just want to be decent and moral together and tell them, now contribute a portion of your pay to our cooperative effort to do whatever it is we're doing, you'll succeed. So you end up with churches with fairly large budgets. I mean, not to pick on the Catholics, but they have their own city, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and a lack of outreach to the most vulnerable in their local communities. So let me spread the wealth. The SBC, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, has a cooperative fund that our church is committed to giving to. And what that fund does, among other things, is it sends missionaries out into you know, austere locations that don't have the gospel. This always pops into my head anytime I think about missions, and it's worth mentioning in case you're not aware of it. Did you all know that uh, Asian countries are now sending missionaries to America? (laughs) Man, how sad, right? Uh, Anyway, what the SBC fails to emphasize, in my opinion, is the importance of every local church having a definitive vision to deploy to her immediate culture. Mm -hmm. So we content ourselves in giving to the cooperative fund, believing that, yes, we're supporting the expansion of the kingdom of God through our monetary gifts, and yet there is this distinct lack of any personal effort to build relationships and draw people to Jesus Christ. Unhealthy churches don't care about truly needy people in her immediate vicinity. So two recommendations for us. First, individually, we've got to lay before God all of our opinions of others. Secondly, cooperatively, we should seek to pour the first fruits of our missional efforts into the community where we are located. Now, that I don't mean just Springfield. More broadly, the metro area. People have cars and they can drive. I would love it if we had the lion's share of the residents of this town coming to church here because I happen to be of the persuasion that we have the right doctrine, we have the authentic and explicit gospel, and your chances of being confronted by the truth are higher here than they are down the road. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Rooted in a lot of facts. Um, There will be more on those two applications as we proceed into chapter 2 today. That we should lay our opinions of, of others before God and that we should be committed to pouring the first fruits of our missions efforts into our local community. Last week, we diverted into Psalm 62. Toward the end of that message, we saw the following. In Psalm 62, 9, David, uh, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, writes, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, or in the scales, they go up. They are together 
lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. What the Bible's telling us there is that whether we are low class or high society, whichever is true of us, all men and women go up when they're placed on the scales of God's much weightier judgment. So think of a scale like one of those things with a cross beam and two trays hanging from it. Whatever you put that's heavier in one side is going to go down and whatever's lighter is going to go up. So the worth of a thing would be determined in terms of scales by its ability to stay down while weight is being added to the other scale. And David's saying, hey, low class, high class, put them together, they're all going up. Equally worthless. Okay, it's the, it's the great leveling of the scriptures of, of all men because it's telling us, the word of God is telling us that we are all equally worthless. Now, that's not terribly, you know, endearing of me to say to you. It's not going to help you like me any better. And so then I have to be careful to make sure you understand I said we are all equally worthless. I don't count myself as the exception. We equally need in the economy of mercy. We equally need in the economy of God's mercy. None of us is any better than any other. So then secondly, money is no place for a child of God to put their hope. Great, but I've still got to pay my bills, right? If you're an adult or trying to be one. You've got to pay your bills. Don't put your confidence in money. Putting, if you are a child of God, putting your confidence in money would be the equivalent of your children, when they're small, putting their confidence in their toys instead of in you as the parent to protect and to provide. Like your Lego gun is not going to help you out if there's an intruder, but dad will. Right? So the the scriptures are encouraging us to have this realistic perspective. I don't weigh anything in the economy of mercy. I am fully dependent on God supplying mercy and grace to me. I don't bring anything to the salvation equation other than my sin. And secondly, I shouldn't depend on anything that I possess. I should depend on he who provides mercy. So I thought that laid the foundation nicely for our next foray into James. So we'll start at verse 26 of chapter 1. I'm going to read through verse 4 of chapter 2. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress or affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place 
while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Haven't you then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? <clears throat> this passage in our culture in 2022 over the last five or six years has become most commonly associated with the idea of social justice. The, uh, the, the error that I see commentators and preachers making is they sometimes conclude that the Bible is egalitarian to the point of being rude or impolite. The word from which the English Standard Version, which is what I read from and was up on the screen, the word from which the ESV gets uh, partiality, the New American Standard Version gets personal favoritism, and the King James Version gets respect of persons. The word is prosopolemsia. It's one of the few six-syllable Greek words. And the KJV has it literally. So if you've got the KJV and it says respect of persons, that's a literal translation. The NASB has it almost literally, and then the ESV gives us the contextual flavor, which is why I like the English Standard Version. Partiality. The failure in interpretation and the reason that this text has been identified with the social justice movement is because often preachers and teachers amputate one through four from 26 and 27 of the previous chapter. So I said uh, extemporaneously two weeks ago when I was preaching, well, actually it was three weeks ago, I think when I was preaching the passage before 26 and 27, I said, hey, I hung all my seminary degrees on the wall this week so you can see them. They're still up there, right? And then I said, in my opinion, 26 and 27 belongs with chapter 2. Now, I don't study ahead. I read ahead, but I don't get into the commentaries until the day before I do my outline. And the reason for that is I don't want to come in here and, and, and preach Wayne Grudem's sermon on James. I don't want to come in here and preach John Piper's sermon on James or Calvin's sermon on James or whoever's. I want to come in and preach whatever the Holy Spirit has led me to preach. I do consult commentaries. So imagine my shock when upon consulting my commentaries, most of them said 26 and 27 probably belong with chapter 2. I was like, well, I'll be. <laughs> Don't need to go to seminary after all. <laughs> <clears throat> the failure in interpretation occurs when we amputate verses 1 through 4 from 26 and 27. The ban here is not on favoritism. The ban is not on showing preference. The ban isn't even on having partiality. Jesus himself seemed to prefer Peter, James, and John, right? Y'all ever read your Bible? You know that. He left all of his disciples over here and then took Peter, James, and John with him and went over there. That's partiality, right? Scripture indicates that some elders are worthy of double honor. 
That's preference. Well, then it can't be judgment with evil motives, right? The Bible instructs us to show preference to some members, notably on the basis of their conduct and reputation. Or in some cases, their age. The ban on favoritism is based on outward advantages such as wealth or appearances. Imagine a church where you had to be wealthy in order to be a teacher or hold office. Imagine a church where, because you were wealthy, you automatically were considered a teacher or an office holder without any official congregational vote. And we see what James is warning against. Wealth, this is so good. I'm sure I didn't come up with it, but I'm pretty sure I came up with it. Ready? (laughs) Wealth does not indicate worth in the sight of God. Wow. (laughs) How good with W, W, right? How we value a person in the church should be drastically different than the lost and dying world. Okay? So let's, let's go uh, for some real-world examples. And I've tried to curate my examples so that they really appeal to my flesh as much as possible so that I'll pay attention to them. Um, if these don't resonate with you, we should talk about the banking system after church because I have thoughts. Oh, and I have to be careful. I don't talk about the banking system too much from the pulpit or I could lose my job. In the early 2000s, Bank of America teamed up with Countrywide, naming Countrywide their home lending or mortgage division to sell more than $1 billion in questionable loans to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac through a program called Hustle. (coughs) The idea of Hustle was... They eliminated underwriters and compliance officers as much as possible from the loan process in order to make sure that loans moved, quote, always forward, never backward. After the housing market implosion in 2008, the ensuing congressional investigations and criminal investigations, no criminal charges were ever brought against Bank of America. None. Wells Fargo certified 6,320 home loans for federal backing through 2010. They didn't even stop in 08 when everything hit the fan. Despite having internally assessed the loans and found them seriously deficient, meaning dangerous, meaning not a good investment, they went ahead and slapped approved on them and sent them on up to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Or is it Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac? Freddie and Fanny. (laughs) Guess how many criminal charges were brought against Wells Fargo and its executives? Zero. Goldman Sachs underwrote more than 11 billion in federally backed mortgages, as well as additional billions in mortgage products, whatever that means. Despite bank managers knowing that most of these loans, $11 billion, the vast majority of which were absolutely toxic, Goldman Sachs did not inform regulators of the knowledge, and as the implosion of the housing market approached, they tried to speed up their efforts to divest themselves of these loans. 
No criminal, criminal charges or fines were directed at Goldman Sachs. Abacus Federal Savings Bank, <clears throat> who I'm doubtful many of you have heard of, is a tiny family-owned bank in New York's Chinatown, wedged in between two noodle shops in the poorest district in Chinatown was the only bank to be indicted in the financial crisis. Nearly 20 employees of the bank, including some making as little as $35,000 a year, were indicted and brought into a courtroom chained together by their hands and feet, even though most of them had already been arraigned and released. Prosecutors put on this dog and pony show where they chained him up and marched him down the halls of the courtroom in New York so that everybody could see how seriously our government takes bank fraud. But listen to this. The bank was charged with granting loans to borrowers who could afford the mortgages but didn't fully reveal their income. The mortgage owners in the case actually paid their debts. They didn't default on their loans, and the company had one of the lowest default rates of any bank in the United States. Fannie Mae actually made $220 million in profits off of Abacus-issued loans. But the case against this bank was portrayed as striking at the heart of the financial crisis even though Abacus was nowhere near big enough to have an impact, and they actually didn't engage in the criminal practices that much bigger banks did. There was one instance where a loan officer apparently was paid to fudge some income numbers for a borrower. Before the housing market implosion and the ensuing government investigations, when it was discovered by the bank that this loan officer had fudged these numbers, they fired the employee, self-reported to their regulators, and it was that that led to an indictment. By all appearances, Abacus was small and poor enough to prosecute, while banks which actually instituted and profited from the subprime lending practices which brought about the 2008 housing bubble were deemed, remember, too big to fail. Abacus wasn't too big to fail. Not a single other bank was prosecuted criminally in the aftermath of the subprime mortgage collapse. Not one other than Abacus. Why? Why were banking executives who were clearly responsible for mortgage collapses let off scot-free while this little Chinese immigrant-owned, family-owned bank in Chinatown was virtually persecuted when their borrowers defaulted at a rate one-tenth that of their competitors? It's hard to say, right? We don't know. We can't imagine why that happened. But I wouldn't be surprised to find out someday that Abacus spent significantly less money hobnobbing with regulators and the banking elite than, say, Wells Fargo, Citibank, or Countrywide, or Goldman Sachs, and on and on and on and on we could go. Judgment was not applied equally, so treatment wasn't either. Now, what does that have to do with James 1, 27 through 2, 4, because we're not here to litigate the, 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 
the evils of bankers or politicians, although if I wanted to get you all to pay attention, there's a lot of red meat I could throw out there <laughs> along those lines. James is writing to us, to Christians, right? So as is his habit, he supplies an illustration which ex- it requires absolutely no explanation, depriving preachers everywhere of the opportunity to be inventive. He says, imagine somebody rolls up for church next Sunday in a Bentley, wearing a Richard Mila watch. I think those start around $40,000. And he's got on a tailored suit, and he's got perfect teeth and great hair. Okay? Got it in your head? It's basically Lee Smith, but rich. (laughs) Rolls up next Sunday in a Bentley. Just after him... Someone else rolls up too. They're in a 95 Dodge Neon. He's wearing one of those Casio calculator watches. He's got summer teeth, patchy hair, and his clothes look about as old as his car. Right? As is typical. Oh, God. Drive a Neon, Kyle? As is typical... This place is packed, right? Every Sunday, it's standing room only. So these two guys come in. Honestly, before God, who would you rather sit by? I didn't say the Dodge driving Casio watch wearing patchy headed man smelled bad. James is exposing a problem we have, and it isn't about race. It isn't about biological sex. It isn't about education. This isn't about social justice. And believe me, the majority of preachers that I've heard on this passage, even the ones that I really, 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 really like, made it about social justice. James is isolating a much broader human heart problem. We misvalue people because we prioritize the wrong things. So when the sons of Jesse stood before Samuel... In order for him to anoint one of them king, there's a hint that Samuel still struggled with this. And we're talking about a guy who had seen firsthand what happens when a man's stature and appearance determine his worth. Because Saul, the first king in Israel, was rugged and handsome and tall and muscular, had a full head of hair, and presented to Samuel for evaluation. Samuel approved And the people of Israel definitely approved of Saul. He was the way to go as far as king. Saul was chosen to be the first king over Israel. Nobody was surprised until he that looked like the king did not act like the king. Saul proved to be greedy, disobedient to God, and knew nothing, relatively speaking, of personal responsibility. It might have been a clue when they found him hiding among the luggage on the day of his... uh, Anointment. Is that the right word? Anointing? Anyway. So the kingdom gets torn from Saul as a result of his own sin, and a new king needs to be chosen. Okay, so Samuel is back in the king choosing business as far as he is the mouthpiece of God in this, you know, prophet era. So God tells him, hey, go to Bethlehem find the house of Jesse, we're going to get a king. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He finds the house of Jesse. He tells Jesse, hey, 
Uh, I'm here to sacrifice. I need you to get all your kids and line them up. So Jesse gets all his kids and lines them up. Here's what it says. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So what did we learn from Saul? Samuel looks at Eliab, the oldest, and goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is the one. This is it, a real king. So God says to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Got it, says every Christian, right? Short, bald, poor people are better than tall, strong, thick head of hair. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we do. We're like, oh, okay, that's bad. Okay, what's the opposite of that? That's what humanity does. But that's wrong too, because then listen to how the Bible describes David, who was actually chosen. <clears throat> Samuel said to Jesse, hey, are all your kids here? All your sons? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep where he belongs. Samuel said to Jesse, go get him because we're not sitting down until he comes here. So Jesse sent and brought him in. Now he, that's David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So it's not that Eliab had something physically deformed about him. It's just that God can do something we can't do, and that's see the heart. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. What is the difference between Eliab and David from a human perspective? It's indecipherable. We can't know because we can't see the heart. This is Eliab, David. Well, one is older, one's younger. All right, old's bad, younger's better. No, that's not the lesson here. We, what, what are we supposed to take away from this? You know how you end up <clears throat> with white people kneeling in front of black people in 2020 at the height of COVID? You want to know how you end up with hashtag believe all women at the height of the Me Too movement? You want to know how you end up with race and sex quotas and hiring at every corporation in America? By trying to fix today with human senses what was broken yesterday with human senses. So women and ethnic minorities have been in the United States of America historically treated like second-class citizens, period. Not a question, not an opinion. They have been. We enslaved black people based on, check this out, kids, the color of their skin. Not, it wasn't me and my brother. It was like our ancestors. Once emancipated, we didn't really give them the right to vote for 100 years. Now, they had the right to vote, okay? But they had to recite the Constitution. They had to be able to answer all kinds of government-related questions that I promise you nobody in this room could answer today. Mm -hmm. Maybe not nobody, but very, very few of us. A hundred years is how long that took. So they were emancipated in 1865. 1965 Civil Rights Act comes into existence, and that gave them the right to vote. Once they were allowed to vote, they were repressed by redlining practices, which lasted well into the 90s, and some would say are still going on today. The solution to all that, white people should kneel in front of black people. 
Women have been treated like objects by men in this country from every income bracket. Facts. And unfathomable instances of compelling them to do favors in exchange for opportunities have emerged in nearly every industry. So sexual harassment and abuse claims finally started to take down men from Hollywood all the way to Willow Creek Church between 2015 and 2020. The solution? Women must be believed no matter how credible their claims in order to undo the evils of repression and abuse. What? Job opportunities were largely quietly reserved for white men for decades after the civil rights movement won equal opportunity in 1965. The most qualified candidates were given for, for a given position were sorted on the base of race and gender, and white guys got jobs that minorities probably should have gotten, and women probably could have gotten. The solution? Companies and organizations must have a diversity quota, and the most qualified candidate, if he is white, will not be given the same opportunity as a minority candidate. Now, if you're a minority, you're probably like, hey, all this sounds good to me. Neil. And I, I, like, from a human perspective, I don't blame you, but all of these responses to instances of systemic injustice are clearly idiotic. Black Americans benefit in no way from white Americans kneeling before them. Women should not be believed just because they are women, and white people shouldn't be passed over for jobs just because historically they were preferred for jobs. These aren't solutions. These are just inversions of the problem. We are utterly incapable of properly evaluating another human being because we cannot see the heart. So, even if we did only evaluate people on the basis of their education, their credit history, and references, we would still choose poorly. What's the danger? What's the warning? What's the takeaway for us as a church? Because all I've done so far, if you've been paying attention, all I've done so far is say, this passage isn't about social injustice, and then proceed to cite examples of social injustice. <coughs> The danger, we judge with evil motives. The warning, we probably aren't qualified to make judgments because we tend to prefer things that don't really matter. The danger, we judge with evil motives. The warning, we probably aren't qualified to make judgments because we tend to prefer things that don't really matter. The takeaway, the takeaway for us is that we have to be really, really diligent to look at the things which God tells us we can look at to form a judgment. To prove it, let's compare 1, 26 and 27 to what James describes in 2, 1 through 4. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Statement of fact. This is pure and undefiled religion. This is what it looks like. Chapter 2, verse 1. Brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man's wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, give him the good seat, and you say to the poor man, go sit down over there or sit by my feet. You have made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. What is pure and what is evil here? 
Well, what's pure is a controlled tongue and a caring heart. That's pure. We think what's pure is being right. Dads, are you more often than not right when your children argue with you? How's that working out? Oh, my house is at war constantly. Do you have a controlled tongue and a pure heart? A loving heart? Or are you too busy winning? Evil. What's evil here? Making distinctions based on external personal preferences. Why is this important? Because... God didn't choose you based on personal qualities, but chose you in spite of your total lack of quality. All men, high society, low society, go up in the scales when put onto the judgment of God. You didn't get picked by God because you had a little shiny something that nobody else around you had. Let me take you to the cross right now. Luke 23, 32. Two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What is the difference, real quick, between Christ and and these two criminals. Infinite, right? Really quickly. One of them was innocent. The others were guilty, right? What was the observable difference between these two criminals? I mean, they might have looked different. The Bible doesn't tell us a description like that? What, what, what did one have that the other didn't have? I don't know. Was one richer? I don't think so. Was, was one better looking? I don't think so. Ultimately, the answer is what difference does it make because they were both equally stretched out and dying, right? The great leveler of men is we put our pants on <clears throat> one leg at a time unless you've practiced a lot, jumping. <laughs> and second, we're all headed for the grave. You came from dust, you're going to return to dust. Now, was there a difference between these two criminals? Yes. 
Massive difference. And it wasn't wealth or social status. One of them had a controlled tongue and a caring heart. Don't know how it happened. Don't know when it happened. But he was gripped with the truth of who the person Jesus Christ was and said so. Restrained his fellow criminal from deriding Jesus. So what we see is a demonstration that his mouth was under control and he cared for the one who was hanging there innocent. He valued the right things. And that was the only difference. One of them believed God and one of them did not. James wants us to know that when we come to church, we had better not be judging one another based on income bracket. Amen? Yeah. That's pretty simple. So, uh, <clears throat> friends of mine in the ministry who I respect, like, a lot, guys that have letters after their name and, and DR before their name, and they've been doing it a long time and succeeded in many aspects of pastoral ministry, uh, chastise me because I don't go through the tithe records. How are you going to hold people accountable? I'm not. I don't want to know who gives what. Because I know my own heart. If I think you're kind of well-to-do, I know what's in my own heart. Like, oh, we got to keep them around. Oh, we need, we need that. I don't want to know. Funny enough, I think it was Rick that once told me, the people that give the most are not the people who you think would give the most. Anyway, I don't want to know. That's the point. When we come to church, we shouldn't judge one another based on income. This shallow, passing, worthless standard of measure has no place among the people who make up the body of Christ. So our elders, our deacons, our teachers will not be chosen based on how much they tithe or how much they could tithe but on how faithfully they serve. Seats will not be given up based upon how you're dressed. Thank God, we don't have to worry about this, right? But in these, these, big, these big churches, what are happening, what are going on, you know? Uh, they, the ushers are trained to get the attractive people up front so that the cameras in the live stream get the good-looking people on camera. I mean, come on, bro. We've turned his house into a house of robbers. Seats won't be given based on how you're dressed, but on how diligently you care for the downtrodden. Starting next Sunday. <laughs> you know what? <clears throat> Let me close with this. You know what someone with a humble heart will never do? Demand a seat. So humility will get played out, will be displayed in a willingness to stand. I'm good. Let somebody else sit. Amen? Amen.